Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. I have today both a return guest and a very illustrious guest, and that is Dr. Robert P. Jones, uh, here to talk about his new book and uh, all the other great work he does. So let me just say, Robbie, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Brad. I'm happy to be back. So your your book is is appearing in the world, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Super excited to talk about it today. I'm sure you're excited for it to launch and to to appear after months of working on it and years of thinking about it and so on. Let me tell folks about you before we jump into the conversation. You're the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. Uh, folks will know PRRI because we quote it on this show all the time, all of the great data and the great findings from your organization. You're also a leading scholar and commentator on religion and politics. I've written all over the place, including The Atlantic, Time, uh, Religion News Service. People can often see you on TV, MSNBC, CNN, and other places. And you're the author of two great books before this one, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, which won the 2021 American Book Award, and The End of White Christian America, which won the 2019 Grawmeyer Award in Religion, and which I have used in my classes many times. You're also a regular Substack newsletter writer, robertpjones.substack.com. And friends, if you've not subscribed to, to, to this Substack, you should. You, Robbie, you write regularly, you write great stuff, and it's something that appears in my inbox all the time and I, I look forward to. So let's talk about Thank the you. hidden roots. <laughs> that was very I was generous. Gonna say, I was going to say, that was a pretty good bio you have. I hope you feel proud. I hope you, appreciate you know, that. on days of... We all have bad days or days we're frustrated. I hope you just come back to your bio and think, I've done some things that are pretty cool and I feel good about it. The book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. You really take us through the hidden roots of white supremacy in United States history. You trace this to the doctrine of discovery, which we're going to talk about in a minute. The doctrine of discovery in your mind is really kind of the fountainhead of the types of uh, egregious actions we see in American history taken against Native Americans and also those of African descent. But before we jump into all of those details, part of the kind of pretext of your book was you were going to write a book about racism in the United States focused on, you know, relationships and and actions and events and histories where black and white people are entangled. But that really got expanded into something a little more kind of wide. What happened? What what took you to this place? Well, research happened, right? Um <laughs> And, and and some reflection based on that research. So that's right. I mean, I, you know, the the last book was really uh, Why Too Long was, uh, you know, a big part of that book was memoir. Uh, and so thinking about my own family's history and kind of tracing that history um, all the way back. And so that that was a um, important part of the journey. But um, just what I realized, for example, is that, you know, that that focus was very much a kind of black, white binary focus. And and that's really being from the South, um, that was primarily the lens through which I was kind of viewing my own family's history. But even there, when I started digging further back, you know, the family lore kind of stopped with 
oh, well, we got this land in eighteen in the 1820s uh, for, via this land lottery uh, that the state of Georgia and was performing. And then, you know, we set up a shop there. We had, there's on my mother's side of the family, there was um, evidence of, uh, uh, you know, people who were, you know, not the kind of wealthy planter class exactly, but still enslaved other people, even, even in a kind of lower class subsistence farmer um, uh, kind of set up. But what I didn't ever push back on was where did that land come from um, that was suddenly available in the 1820s and the 1830s in a land lottery? And, you know, once you kind of ask that question, it really opens up the aperture right? and it's like, oh, well, that land came from the Cherokee who were forcibly removed from that land and forced to walk and other ways across what became the, called the Trail of Tears, which upwards of 20 percent or more uh, died on that on that uh, trek. Uh, to all the way to Oklahoma. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, my home state of Mississippi, but also about the Trail of Tears and and Oklahoma and really this intertwined history, of not just a sort of white or your people of Europeans descent uh, connections to African-Americans, uh, but the story behind that story. And that is our relationship to the original inhabitants of this land. I so much to jump in here. This is what happens, though, friends, in research. You you set out to write a book that looks like this, and then you trace some family history that lands you in the 1800s. And then lo and behold, somehow you find yourself in the 1400s. And so uh, that is really how the book works. You take us to the doctrine of discovery. If you're a historian, if you're a student of American history or European history, world history, you're going to know about the doctrine of discovery. But let's start here. What is just a very basic definition of that doctrine, and where does it come from? Yeah, well, let me first say I've got a PhD in religion. I'm not a historian trained in sociology, but uh, I knew very little about this, despite having a PhD in in religion. And you know, maybe I'd heard the term, but it certainly didn't register to me as anything really significant uh, for our current predicament or our current divides uh, uh, and political strife. Uh, but really, the more I started digging around on this, I was like, oh, actually. The things we're arguing over today, our history, um, our origin story, it goes directly back here. So, you know, to kind of just boil it down, the Doctrine of Discovery, uh, it came to be called that. It's a series, actually, of uh, papal documents that were issued really over a period, the kind of last half of the 15th century. So starting around 1450 and capping in 1493, uh, and they were these papal decrees that were being, uh, they were asked to issue these documents by the Western political powers, so by Spain, the kings of Spain and Portugal. And what spurred them was the quote unquote discovery of these lands where all, there were all these people and lands that were previously unaccounted for. And so the real question was, what rights do we have vis-a-vis -vis these people in these lands? And they were essentially asking for a moral and religious justification for conquest. Uh, that's really what it boiled down to. And what's really remarkable about these documents is that they're really uh, not pulling any punches. And again, this, these are official edicts of the Western Church. And this is before the Catholic-Protestant split, right? So there is no Protestant versus Catholic Church. All of Western Europe is under the Pope's authority at this point. And he really acts like it's the closest thing to international law that really existed at this time, right? And so they're appealing to uh, get this ruling. and it's it's really stunning, and it, it basically says this: that uh, if it, the the church proclamation says, look, if you encounter 
any lands where the people are not Christian. And that is the defining characteristic. Any lands where the people are not Christian, you have permission and the blessing of the church and the power of the state to conquer, to kill, to subdue. And then like this, even these like phrases, like the one that really stands out to me is, is also to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, right? That is in the document coming out of the head of the Christian church at the time. Uh, but it, but it, it puts into play this idea that because of a, this, that, that Christianity is superior to every other religion, uh, that European civilization and people are superior to all others on the planet, uh, and that there is a religious mandate in fact, to carry out this conquest in the name of uh, the king and the church. One of the things that I think is so important in learning about this doctrine of discovery is for folks to really see the legitimacy, the authority that religion is giving to what we now call racism. And so when we talk about Christian nationalism on the show, when so many other folks, including yourself, are commenting on our contemporary situation, this historical set of documents really reminds us that there was a time when it was just openly saying, if you meet people who are not Christian, you have the, the authority coming from the Pope to perpetually enslave them. That is what yeah. it says. And they're called enemies of Christ, right? That's the definition. I think you've answered this a little bit. And I think there's people who are going to already have put together the kind of the, the two threads. But how does the doctrine of discovery really kind of lead us back to both anti-Black racism and the attempted genocide and the, the forced removal of Native, uh, Native Americans. In other words, if you're going to study those two things in, in the United States and uh, United States history, or even before there was a United States, how does the doctrine of discovery help us to understand the, uh, the treatment of Native Americans and the enslavement of, of, of people of African descent on this continent? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it is the thing that unleashes the entire colonial project. Right, including the transatlantic slave trade uh, and the conquest of uh, the Americas. Um, so again, it is I, I've kind of thought it is the version of Christianity that lands on these shores. Right, that is the dominant expression of Christianity that lands here. So it 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 really permeates you know everything there is. And so all these ideas that we have manifest destiny. The idea of America as a new kind of promised land or a new Zion. Um, these are all read straight out of this idea of uh, the doctrine of discovery and the idea that this land is, was somehow divinely or providentially reserved for the exploitation by this one people group from from Europe. But it, it it's it's remarkably present, right, in our founding documents. So even the uh, the Declaration of Independence has got this phrase about merciless savages, right, um, in, in the country. The, the Constitution explicitly excludes Native Americans uh, from, from the rights in, in that document. And then it comes right up through. It's incorporated into U.S. law through Supreme Court decisions. And, you know, it's it cited as recently and by none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right, in a Supreme Court uh, ruling where footnote one you know, it's and this is a majority ruling, you know, against a Native American tribe cites us explicitly the doctrine of discovery as as a reason why their rights really aren't things that have to be respected. It's astounding, absolutely astounding. The book is is organized into three case studies, and it's a really it's a really great and helpful way to organize a book like this because I think you really bring out how these two things, you know, anti-black racism and the treatment of 
of uh, indigenous folks on this continent are connected. The case studies are in Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Minnesota. How was the doctrine of discovery? So let's let's say in Mississippi, that's your home state. You've already mentioned Mississippi. How was the doctrine of discovery used mm-hmm. against Native Americans in the Mississippi Delta? Yeah, you know, I think one of my favorite sentences in the book is that sounds like a, a hyperbolic overstatement, but I, I really think it it stands is that you know I, I begin with Emmett Till uh, and his murder in, in in Mississippi, but you know he was born in 1941, uh, but I write in the book that his story begins 400 years before that, uh, right, with Hernando de Soto, the Spanish conquista, showing up on the banks of the Mississippi and the early early um, contact with Native Americans there, which was violent. And, and bloody uh, conflict uh, there, and and so I I think when the I, I've really stayed focused in the Mississippi Delta, and what's notable there is that what has to happen first again before uh, you know the kind of whole antebellum scene that we kind of often associate with places like the Mississippi Delta can even exist. There has to be there are people there, right? so there has to be this removal of of uh, killing and removal of indigenous people. There and so there is, along with uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, all these kind of southeastern states that had Native American populations uh, in the early 1800s, begin to be pushed off uh, the land and then forcibly um, uh, pushed off the land um, under Andrew Jackson's uh, uh, presidency. It was the largest forced migration in the continent's history. Um, some 80,000 people uh, forced from their homes, uh, and again, maybe 20 percent of them died. Um, on on the en route uh, to getting pushed into what is now Oklahoma, uh, so that cleansing has to happen, uh, and it it only happens really in the name of uh, it, the moral kind of force and justification comes from Christianity. This this idea that these these phrases like savages, uncivilized, um, heathen, right? Those uh, barbarians, like those kinds of languages come right out of this idea of Christian superiority and, and justify this horrific uh, treatment and violence toward Native Americans. And then right behind that, right, once the land is kind of cleared of uh, of those original inhabitants, comes enslavement, right, uh, because the land has to be turned into farmland, productive farmland. Uh, and so right behind that are uh, people of European descent make staking claims uh, to land, in many cases, like my ancestors, getting it for free uh, from the government. If you were of European descent and agreed to come down and homestead, you could just get a plot of land. And and then they used uh, enslaved labor to uh, turn that land into extreme wealth in many, many cases. So these things, there's a direct line here. And I think that's the new thing or for me. Of, of course, there's a way in which I like I knew that, but but I think the seeing the direct connection and that it's the same logic. I think that's the thing. It's the same moral and religious logic fueled by this really dominant form of, of Christian understanding and worldview uh, that puts sets us on this course. It's astounding to think about forced migration of eighty thousand people from you know the Mississippi Delta and then the importing of people. From another continent. I mean, it's astounding to think you would tell one group of people you are forced to leave. Go, we will walk you uh, to to Oklahoma so that we can have this land, and then we are going to import people and forcibly bring them from another continent so they will work the land for us. I mean, it's when you think about it in those terms, it's astounding. And then we arrive back at Emmett Till. So you just talked to us about the you know the the forced removal. 
You've talked to us about enslavement. How does this all end up with the murder of Emmett Till, a young boy in his early teenage years from Chicago, who's accused of doing something very minor, harassment or, or, or glancing at a white woman, and he's eventually murdered. How does Emmett Till tie into the history you just told us? Yeah, well, you know, if we kind of start with how does he get it? How does his family get to Chicago? He's, his, his mother was born in Mississippi, in the Delta, not far from, uh, you know, these other events that we're talking about, right, in the Mississippi Delta. And, and why does her family end up in Chicago? Well, her, her family was part of the Great Migration, uh, uh, as many, many families from there was like a, a, a whole pipeline. The warmth of other sons tells the story like very beautifully. People fleeing the Jim Crow South, right? Because the South had, had thrown off this very brief period of reconstruction after the Civil War and it just started re implementing segregation, voter suppression, uh, racial terrorism, and the like. And so their family fled to Chicago. And he was actually back visiting his relatives in Mississippi. That, that's how he got back. Uh, to, to, he was visiting his uncle in the Delta, not far from where his, his mother was born. And so then you ask, like, well, what kind of a society is set up so that, yes, this kind of even minor infraction, he's a teenage boy and he evidently whistled at a, a, a woman running a store um, and he is tortured and killed, kidnapped in the middle of the night out of his house, uh, tortured and killed uh, by two white men who were subsequently tried and exonerated. Uh, within an hour, like the, the del jury del deliberation by, by all white men took less than an hour. Uh, and then they later confessed, right, to the, to the crime, but were never punished because they had been acquitted. So how do you set up a, a society like that? You know, I think many people heard that story and it's so horrific and so brutal and so painful, uh, but it becomes much less surprising when you see it against the backdrop uh, of a worldview fueled of kind of white supremacy, fueled by this uh, version of Christian understanding rooted in the doctrine of discovery. So just to bring all of this to the present, friends, uh, we've talked about the doctrine of discovery from the late 1400s, talked about your family history uh, in the 1800s. We've talked about uh, Emmett Till and the woman who accused Emmett Till just died in April of 2023. Mm -hmm. So it brings us all the way into 2023. Carolyn Bonham Bryant accused uh, is the one who who made the accusation against Emmett Till and and really set off all of yeah. these events. So it reaches all the way into our current time. Yeah, and I'll add one more. I mean, that that's maybe a more hopeful note uh, to this to this big arc here is that. So I'm in D.C. and I had the I had the privilege just a few weeks ago of attending the reception after um, President Joe Biden signed a new proclamation uh, establishing a new national monument that's going to be the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley. National Monument is going to be under the auspices of the National Park System, and it's going to be jointly located in the Mississippi Delta, uh, where these events happen, and in Chicago, where he grew up. This means that we're going to have like the federal government then supporting under the National Park System the telling of this story, right? Um, and and for so long, this story was really forgotten and suppressed in in Mississippi, and that was part of the work. I you know in the book I interview. And, and spend some time hanging out with some of the folks this that were about like making sure they told this story in the Delta on the ground. And it, that work has really blossomed and resulted in this amazing uh, new uh, uh, national monument so that this story, there's no chance at this point that this story will not be known uh, and this part of our history won't be known. Uh, and um, it's a great line, actually, that Kamala Harris had in, in the uh, thing. She said, you know, let us not be seduced 
into thinking that we're going to be better if we forget. We're going to be better if we remember. We're going to be stronger if we remember. Um, and I think that's one of the key you know, things why this work is important. Well, that leads right into a question I want to ask in a minute about CRT and book bans and how those are all part of the family history of the Doctrine of Discovery. I do want to make one observation, though, which is that still in Mississippi, we, we have what seem to be vestiges of this way of thinking, at least at least from my view. Some people may be familiar with the, the fact that the state of Mississippi is basically taking over Jackson, right, and mm -hmm. other parts of the state, right, in, in a way that really kind of tramples on the autonomy of majority Black cities in the state and seems to kind of be a, a callback to a time when uh, you know, powerful white folks in state houses were kind of controlling the entire state. So, you know, we can still see some of this in Mississippi politics, if if I'm not mistaken. No, I think that's right. And, and just this week, we're seeing it in Tulsa. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's a, also an attempt for, by a white state uh, uh, superintendent to take over uh, the Tulsa public schools, right? Um, in, in a very similar uh, way. And I, I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's why it's important to tell these stories because you know, we have been here before. And in many ways, these kinds of events, I think, are the last ditch effort as the country is changing to kind of hold on, you know, by really by almost any means necessary, including violence uh, in, in many cases, to this old world where white Christian people were at the center, at the top of the pyramid, et cetera. So, you know, you talked about this line from Kamala Harris about, you know, we're not going to be better if we forget. And in fact, by remembering we are better because uh, we face history and uh, hopefully we'll do better. I'm thinking about the panics over critical race theory, book bans, uh, dramatic changes to school curricula in places like Florida and Texas and across the South and across the country, really. Is the doctrine of discovery at play in those things? Can we can we trace you know some of the impetus for these kinds of moves? to the spirit of the doctrine of discovery, or is that just kind of going too far and it's all it's all too far removed? No, I mean, I think we can. Um, I think I think it's at play. And and what's what's at play though is is um really preventing us from seeing that what for what it for what it was, um, which was uh, the blessing of the church on racial violence. And and that's a hard thing to see, I think. But I, I think it's an important thing to see if we're not going to repeat you know those mistakes. Uh, in, in the future, but it is this kind of cover up, this you know attempt to forget, to kind of forced amnesia. Like it, it is quite remarkable, really. And and I, I'm reminded of um, this searing quote from James Baldwin that, I, that always like rings in my ears whenever this topic uh, comes up. Um, that he he talks about um, what black people thought about white people, and and what he says is that you know there's a way in which. We thought about, and we he's he's he is saying we uh, we thought about people as as being the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing, and the sense that we have lied to ourselves for so long, right? That we don't even know who we are anymore, um, right? That we we've not been willing to tell the truth about our lives, about the world, about our past, um, and you know that can only lead uh, to a kind of psychosis, you know. And I think we're seeing that. Uh, in our politics, everything from the the willingness to believe these wild conspiracy uh, theories to going to such great lengths uh, to like not count AP history as a high school credit uh, in the state of Arkansas and in Florida, doing some very similar uh, things. 
Um, these are fairly extreme responses. Uh, and I think they're the, the, maybe the better word is desperate uh, responses to kind of keep it covered up, right? Because I think if it all sees the light of day, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's just purely unjustified. And, and they know that, and I'd say we, maybe we, we white Christian people know that things are going to have to change and that we're going to have to be held accountable uh, for some of these things and in a way that changes the way things are in the future. It really feels like there is a, a sense in which uh, we've gone from the doctrine of discovery to the doctrine of forgetting. Yeah. If you can forget, uh, then you will have a generation of, of students, especially you know white students, who will not know the histories that created the inequalities of the present. And if you can in, instill and cultivate that ignorance, uh, that forgetting, then uh, that's a winning strategy to keep the status quo. You know, it almost feels yeah. like forgetting is a pedagogical practice at the moment. You know, the art of teaching is the art of excising. And that's really scary, but it really shows the psychosis, I think, that you just mentioned. Yeah. And uh, the fear, I think, really, the fear of our own past. I mean, what healthy nation is afraid of its own past? I mean, when, you know, I, I, I spent some time in Berlin um, earlier this year, and everywhere you go, there are uh, there's uh, a beautiful big memorial to the Holocaust victims in the middle of town. Even on like random sidewalks around the city, there are these little brass plaques, uh, right, uh, on cobblestones yeah. where there was a Jewish family abducted, uh, kidnapped or killed. And it has their names, their birth dates, their death dates, what happened to them, like all the stuff that they actually know as a way of just going about your everyday lives, uh, trying to kind of reckon with. Um, that past. And again, not to, I think the, the point of this is, I think this was often lost on people, not to beat people up or want to make white people feel bad or feel guilty, but it's it's about uh, getting to, well, it's about kind of like being liberated from that past and getting to a better moral place that, again, we might stand together on. Well, and I want to, I want to move into kind of the the book's treatment of reconciliation efforts in Mississippi and Minnesota and Oklahoma. Uh, I, I, it strikes me that I cannot get away from this point as you were talking that there are a lot of people in the country right now who would tell us we need to move on from the past and not be teaching kids about Chinese exclusion, about the Middle Passage, about Japanese incarceration. But if you dare take down that Confederate memorial, I am going to mm. lose my mind. Like it's on one hand, they're telling you our kids don't need to remember that stuff. On the other hand, it's like if you dare take down that memorial, Oh. I, used to, I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee. If you dare dig down yeah. that Nathan Bedford Forrest Memorial, I am going to lose my mind because that is my America. However, do not dare teach my child the other yeah. memories that we have as a nation because they're too young for that or it's inappropriate or it's going to make them feel bad. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about reconc... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just make one comment on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's worth noting, right? You know, we call these things memorials, right? And the reason for that is because they evoke a certain kind of memory, right? They have a story that they tell. And, you know, I spent a little bit of time at the uh, the headquarters uh, for the United Daughters of the Confederacy, digging through archives. When you read back through the minutes of meetings, uh, the rationales for, and they were raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to put these monuments up all over the country, but they were pedagogical in nature, right? They, they actually had two programs. They had a, a monument program, but the other major program they had was a textbook uh, program where they were trying to get Confederate-friendly histories into public schools all across the world, well, really across the country, certainly across the South, 
they had like a selected list of approved books and they were trying to get them into the, into the curriculum, including into black schools, uh, right? To kind of tell this rose-colored glass story about, uh, about uh, the South and the Confederacy. So these, it's not sort of a, like a passive active thing. I mean, the, the whole Confederate Monument Project was a like a very active, very intentional pedagogical project to tell a white supremacist history. Yeah. And to make that a part, literally a part of the landscape, you know, like I, one last point that I was in, I was in Virginia last week and drove through Orange, Virginia, is near James Madison's former plantation where he enslaved a number of people. But in the, in the, um, Orange is the county seat and the courthouse is there. And, uh, there are two things on either side of the courthouse. One says Madison's tomb, right? Got a founding father, all that stuff about our constitutional freedoms. Uh, and on the other corner is a gigantic Confederate monument uh, still standing on the same corner of this uh, courthouse in Orange, Virginia. And I think we're still living with these contradictions. You know, you talk about memorial and I, I once had a I was I once once in one of these settings where you're at a dinner party and somebody makes the mistake of bringing up. <laughs> you know. Confederate memorials. Yeah. And uh, I'm not really one who's good at not speaking his mind and uh, making things awkward. And so we and I, yeah, we really got into it. And he finally looked at me after the whole dinner party was ruined and everyone was just watching us argue. And he said, well, if the Confederate memorials go away, what will I have for my my ancestors? You know, what will I have from their life and experience? And my response was, you'll have all the stuff you have. You'll have pictures and journals and memorial. You will have a memorial inside your house. I just don't think that publicly we all need to memorialize your family because I don't think that's something we should do collectively in our memory. That's all. You know, there's a difference between yeah. remembering your kin and honoring them in some way and all of us publicly doing it, I think. Also, yeah. to remember that those weren't just like honoring figures. If you look at the words on the Confederate yeah. monuments, right, this one in particular that's at, in the courthouse uh, on the county courthouse lawn, it says on there, they fought for the right. Right. Uh, if you went to Richmond before the Jefferson Davis Memorial was torn down, um, there was this huge column that had a woman, a bronze woman with her finger pointing to the sky. And under it in Latin, it said, God will vindicate. Yeah. These were not passive. Oh, we're these we're going to honor these, you know, people. They were like, no, like they these were propaganda you know, pieces, yeah. white supremacist pop propaganda pieces. That's right. Somehow we got into Confederate memorial. Yeah, and we got all right. No, we got to bring it back to reconciliation. One of the things I really appreciate about the book is the sustained attention given to attempts to uh, to find a better, you know, shared American path. What does that look like in Mississippi? What are the ways that you've already mentioned the Emmett and, and Mammy Till Federal Monument, National Monument, I should say. What are the other things happening on the ground there that people may not be aware of and, and how yeah. do they point us to a better future? Well, I... I... I think this is where I find some hope actually was hanging out with these people who on the ground have been trying to tell uh, these stories of white racial violence and help the community heal uh, and come to uh, terms across lines of race. Uh, so in Mississippi, it, it actually started, interestingly enough, with an African-American who was one of the first African-Americans to be elected once after the Voting Rights Act was passed and, people, and black people could actually register to vote. In, in Tallahatchie County. He was one of the first round of kind of wave of, of black elected officials on the local level. His name was Jerome Little. And what was remarkable about him is he grew up in that area. And it wasn't until he was serving in the armed forces overseas in France that he learned about the story of Emmett Till. 
even though it happened like down the road. Uh, that's how like complete the forgetting it was. And so when he, he got back, I mean, he set out, to, he said, look, we're going to tell this story. Um, and it turned into kind of a multiple decade thing, but it, you know, it turned into people coming up. And what's, I think what's so moving about those stories is that these, you know, it's a very small community. The county seat, Sumner, Mississippi has like 600 people in it. So it's very rural, it's very poor. There's not a lot of resources available for people to tap. And yet what we had was sons and daughters uh, descended from uh, enslavers uh, and sons and daughters uh, descended from the enslaved and sharecroppers coming together who who know each other's family history. And these are not like anonymous things in small town America, right? These people know their relatives. Um, and yet coming together with all this fraught history and saying, we are going to make a better place for the next generation. And it starts with telling the truth about this very fraught history uh, that we've been so quiet about. We're going to tell the truth about that. We're going to stand together and build something new. And it's it, and again, it was not quick. I mean, this is like a couple of decades of work on the part of this group. Uh, not And I tell the story in the book, not smooth either. Rocky, fraught, as anybody who's done this kind of community organizing work knows, uh, it never goes, never a straight line. But yet persistence over time. Uh, and now we have this uh, new national monument. Uh, that's going to be there to permanently tell the story. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, again, I think one of the the great virtues of your book is just the time you give to these to these stories of people on the ground uh, in these three locations. And it's it's easy. I, I know for me personally, it's easy for me to diagnose the problems, to lament them, to analyze them unflinchingly. But there's also uh, the need to give hope uh, in the face of all of that and to cultivate that hope. Uh, in an ongoing way. So I appreciate that about the book. Uh, I need to let you go. But before that, what's the best ways people can kind of keep up with what you're doing, places you might be uh, talking about your book and uh, anything else? Yeah, well, I've got a little mini fall book tour. So I'll be in Mississippi. I'll be in Minnesota. I'll be in Tulsa. So kind of look for that. You can find that posted on my Substack. Uh, it's uh, robertpjones.substack.com or you can get to it at whitetoolong.net. Either place will take you there. And I'm writing regularly kind of updates from the road, other kinds of commentary as we move through the fall and then into election season next year. And then the book's available wherever books are sold. There's an audio book, uh, there's Kindle, the ebooks, uh, hardcover, however you want to read it, it's it's available. But anyway, thank you, Brad, uh, for the conversation. It's great. No, thanks for, thanks for coming by. I know you're busy, you're in great demand, and uh, just really appreciate your insight and uh, friends. Check out the book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Uh, you won't regret it. And uh, I guarantee you, you're going to learn a lot about a long history from even before this country was the United States. As always, find me at Bradley Onishi. Find us at Straight White JC. We do this show three times a week. We don't have any outside funding, no big grants or university uh, money coming our way. So if you can support us on Patreon or Venmo or uh, PayPal, that is all in our show notes. Otherwise, we'll be back later this week with It's in the Code and the Weekly Roundup. And for now, we'll say thanks for being here. Have a good day. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.